our sermon this morning is uh, on Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 to 18, on the flight to Egypt. Turn to Matthew 2 in your Bibles if you have them. Uh, if you're using a pew Bible, you can find Matthew chapter 2 on page 758. So turn there and let's look together at this passage in Matthew 2. We've been spending the Advent season this year in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, it's one of two Gospels that has an account of Jesus' birth. It's Matthew and Luke. Mark doesn't have uh, anything. Mark just jumps right in in Jesus' adulthood, his uh, baptism, and his you know, commissioning into, into ministry. The Gospel of Mark is... It just it moves really quickly. It's almost like the, the writer of Mar- Mark, as he was writing it, like stripped out any uh, extraneous details, anything other than just like the main themes. It's very fast moving, short sentences, short accounts. Let's kind of keep it, the Gospel of Mark was written to a Roman audience, and a lot of scholars think it was written uh, almost like a like a traveling companion for like Roman soldiers. They could, they could use, uh, you know, take the gospel of Mark and kind of read it on their breaks and things like that. It's just meant for, uh, it's just, it's a very quick, fast paced gospel. So no, it's almost like Mark didn't have time to deal with anything other than Jesus's adulthood and his ministry. The gospel of John also doesn't have an account of Jesus's childhood. Um, and it's because John is like, John's like the black sheep of the Gospels. The, the, the th- Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic Gospels uh, because they all have a lot of similarities. A lot of core material and core content is very similar, even down to the words, down to the, the language them, themselves. John is kind of an oddball. And he, um, you know, his gospel looks and feels a lot different than the other three. And so he starts uh, with kind of talking about the nature of Jesus and who he was, but not necessarily looking at his uh, birth and his childhood per se. So that leaves us with Matthew and Luke. Luke is probably what we're all familiar with, right? If you've seen the uh, Charlie Brown Christmas story, you probably know the Gospel of Luke, right? When, when Linus says, and there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night, and behold, the angel of the Lord you know, came upon them, the glory of the Lord shone around about them. That's Linus quoting from Luke. Luke is you know, uh, the, the, the Gospel, the, the birth narrative that we're all very familiar with. It's where we, Luke zooms in a lot on Mary, uh, he focuses on kind of Mary and her experiences and her inner monologue and the songs that she's singing and thinking about. It zooms in on Mary's uh, relatives, on uh, her uh, cousin Elizabeth and uh, Elizabeth's husband Zechariah. Uh, and so, so that's, that's the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Matthew doesn't really zoom in on any of that stuff. We don't see uh, nearly as much about Mary as we do about Joseph. We don't see anything about Mary's uh, relatives. Matthew uh, zooms in on Joseph and his experiences. We see the Magi and the flight to Egypt and then the, the kind of return to Nazareth. That's kind of uh, Matthew's gospel. And so we kind of get the bigger, the broad picture of Jesus' birth and, and infancy and childhood by merging those two together and taking what we learn about uh, Jesus and Mary and her experiences and relatives from Luke and Joseph and his and their, their kind of flight to Egypt and back put them all together, synthesize them together, and we can kind of get a, a full picture of Jesus' birth and, and childhood. So, uh, two weeks ago, we looked at Jesus' birth. Uh, last week, we looked at the visit of the Magi. And so today, we're going to look at the flight to 
uh, to Egypt. The, the Magi have come and gone by this point, and on their way to Bethlehem, they stop through Jerusalem, and Herod stops them and says, hey, I want to come worship uh, this child too, so tell me where, give me his address, tell me where he is, I would like to come and, and worship him. And the Magi are Gentiles, but even they're like, man, something's, something's off about this guy. He's a little... A little slimy, a little less than, than forthright. And so they go visit Jesus, and then they kind of look at each other and think, we're not going to tell Herod. We're not going to tell Herod where Jesus is because we don't think that he has the best of intentions. And so that, so the, the Magi refuse to, to go back and tell Herod. They leave, they go to their country another way, and that's verse 12, and that picks up right in verse 13 where we'll be at today. It says, Now... When they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he took the child and his mother by night and they departed to Egypt and they remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years or old or younger, or who were two years old and under, according to the time that he ascertained from the wise men. And then was fulfilled what what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we pray that the miracle of the incarnation would not be lost on us, that it would not... Uh, grow stale to us, that, that we would not become bored with it. Lord, we pray that you would impress upon us the, the significance and the weight and the beauty that is the incarnation of Christ. And we pray for these next few moments as we meditate on your words. We pray that you would help us to do just that. That you would help us to... Um, yeah, focus on and exult in and rejoice in the person and work of Christ who came to us to save us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Okay, verse 13. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. The Magi, the, the Magi is who is they in this point. So when the Magi had departed, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Uh, it's entirely possible that this angel that's visiting Joseph uh, is the same angel that visited him in chapter 1, verse 21. Um, the angel who kind of came and said, don't divorce Mary. Don't, uh, you know, leave her, leave her behind. She didn't, uh, she was not unfaithful to you. This is kind of a miraculous birth that's taking place here. It's entirely possible that, yeah, that Joseph sees this angel is like, hey, like, I know you, like we, you know, we, we interacted just, you know, a few weeks, a few months uh, ago. 
Uh, it's also entirely possible that this angel, so we don't know that it's the same angel because we don't know the name of the angel because Matthew doesn't tell us the name of the angel. Luke tells us the name of the angel in his gospel, that it's the angel Gabriel. Uh, and so it stands to reason, he says that, that Gabriel was the one who visited Mary in a dream and Gabriel was the one who, who visited Mary's cousin's husband, Zechariah. That was, both, that was Gabriel kind of going and kind of giving those messages to those two people. So it stands to reason that the angel that's mentioned twice in Matthew is the same angel and that it is actually Gabriel from, from uh, the same one from Luke 1 and 2. We're not sure, but it seems like a reasonable guess. The, the angel Gabriel is also mentioned in the book of Daniel. If you're like, you know, if you want extra credit, you can read through Ga- Daniel chapter 8 and 9, and he's mentioned there as well as someone who is, you know, helping explain some of these complicated and complex visions and dreams to, uh, to, to Daniel. So this angel, probably Gabriel, maybe, maybe not, not sure, but he comes to Joseph and he says, rise Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. So the angel from God is, um, is reinforcing, he's corroborating what the Magi felt about Herod, which is that he is a bad guy. Something, something's off about it. He's a wicked man and that he doesn't want to worship Jesus. He wants to kill Jesus and that there's nothing that he won't do to, to eliminate Jesus from uh, from, from the earth. Verse 14, it says, He rose, Joseph rose, and took the child and his mother by night, and they departed to Egypt, and they remained there until the death of Herod. So Jesus, uh, by this point, is, is a little baby, probably two years old, maybe less, um, and he is already on the run for his life. He's already a refugee seeking political asylum in a foreign country because the tyrannical dictator king of his home country wants to murder him. That's the, that's the first, th- that is Jesus' introduction into the world as we know it, is, is being targeted in a murderous plot by a power-hungry, blood-thirsty king that wants to, that wants to kill him. Don't underestimate how hard Jesus' life was. Don't underestimate how difficult it was for Jesus to leave his throne in heaven and to come to earth and to enter into our broken, sin-affected, suffering-laden world. Don't underestimate the 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 cosmic leap that it was from from Jesus in heaven to Jesus here on on earth we 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 think about Jesus we think about the pain that he endured the suffering that he willingly you know invited onto himself to save sinners we usually think about the cross and rightfully so right the cross is uh the climax it is the uh the the you know the pinnacle of Jesus's uh, suffering for us, the cross is what theologians call uh, Jesus's passive obedience. Right, Jesus on the cross, uh, he receives 
uh, the wrath of God. He receives the punishment of God for the sins of humanity. So Jesus on the cross, this is his passive obedience where he is experiencing God's wrath and receiving it as, as, an, as a passive agent to receive. But theologians also have a category called Jesus' active obedience, which is the entirety of his life leading up to the cross, from childhood, from infancy, all the way on up. And so uh, just as Jesus' passive obedience on the cross was marked by suffering that he did not deserve, pain and hardship, so too was Jesus' active obedience for his entire life was also marked by suffering and pain and hardship. The moment he's born, he's put into a manger because he's surrounded by livestock. He's not, this is not where children are normally born. This is not, certainly not where kings are normally born, right? The first moment of a child's life in America today is, is going to look radically different than the first moments of Jesus's life. It's going to look radically better and more comfortable than, than Jesus's life. He's put in a manger. Jesus's parents were poor, uh, Jesus' parents had to you know, flee in the middle of the night. They had to, to run uh, from someone that was trying to kidnap and kill their child. Jesus did not leave his throne in heaven uh, to come into our world in a way that was comfortable or luxury. Jesus left his throne in heaven and came to occupy spaces in our world that are markedly uncomfortable and dangerous and difficult and hard. Jesus truly was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. J.C. Ryle, a theologian, puts it this way. He says, Trouble awaits Jesus as soon as he enters into the world. His life is in danger from Herod's hatred. His mother and Joseph are obliged to take him away in the middle of the night. It was only a type, a foreshadow of all of his experience upon all the earth. So, so this, this running from this murderous uh, you know, ruler is a foreshadow of all of his experience that he would have for the next 33 years uh, in, his, in his life. The waves of humiliation began to beat over him even when he was at his mother's breast. The Lord Jesus is just the Savior that the suffering and the sorrowful need. Jesus knows well what we mean when we tell him in prayer about our troubles. He can sympathize with us when we cry to him under cruel persecution. Let us keep nothing back from Jesus. Let us make him our close friend. Let us pour our hearts out before him because he has great experience with affliction. The incarnation of Jesus, that we remember, we, we actively and intentionally remember it and celebrate it every year during Advent. The, ad, the, the incarnation of Jesus is a reminder that Jesus is with us in our pain and our suffering. He's close to us. And so we can come to Him, we can trust in Him because He came to us and He experienced what we experience. It says, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I have called my son. This is a quote from uh, Hosea chapter 11, where the prophet is highlighting God's great love for his, his people. He says, uh, when, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Israel is my son, God is saying. 
I taught them to walk. I took them up by their arms. I led them with cords of kindness, with bands of love. I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them, and I fed them. Hosea 11 uh, is, is God speaking about how he has adopted Israel as his child and raised them and loved them and taken care of them. They are, in a very real sense, God's Firstborn son, God's only begotten son, is the the nation of of Israel. And Matthew is picking up on that language when he refers to Jesus as God's son. Think about about the story of Israel. I want to just kind of do a a quick comparison here as we kind of of look at them. The the story of Israel starts with uh, Abraham in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Uh, and God call, goes to Abraham and he says, all right, Abraham, I want you to go from your country, go from your kindred, go from your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of all the earth shall be blessed. This is the Abrahamic covenant, God's kind of foundational promise to Abraham out of which the entire nation of Israel was was birthed. And God is essentially saying, Abraham, uh, I'm going to give you children. I'm going to make you into a great nation. Uh, You will be my God. I, I will be your God. You will be my people. And I will bless you. And I will bless the world through you. It's the Abrahamic covenant, right? Your job is to worship me and enjoy my blessing and then to mediate, to broadcast the blessing of God out to the the world. Which, interestingly enough, is more or less a restating of uh, God's covenants with uh, Noah before him and Adam before him, right? Adam in the garden, God essentially says, you worship me, you, you trust, like, I'll be your God, you be my people, I'll bless you, and I want you to bless the world. God says the same thing to Noah after the flood, I'll be your God, you be my people, I will bless you, you bless those, uh, you know, you bless the entire world. So, God says this to Abraham, Abraham promptly in Genesis 12 goes to Egypt, And uh, uh, by way of Egypt, they go to the promised land. Later, they actually resettle in Egypt permanently when Joseph uh, is sold into slavery there. They grow, they kind of uh, you know, thrive in Egypt. Pharaoh sees Israel as a threat. And so he says, I want to I kill uh, all of the firstborn Israelite, or I want to kill all of the Israelite male children because these Israelites are a threat to me. Later, when Moses confronts Pharaoh, uh, demands that Pharaoh let the people go. Uh, Pharaoh doesn't want to until God visits these plagues on him, and eventually uh, Pharaoh says, okay, you can, you can go. And God uh, gives them uh, a Passover meal to kind of commemorate and celebrate this, this exodus, this being freed from the slavery and the tyrannical grip of Pharaoh. And during the exodus, God says, in this manner you shall eat with your belt fastened, your feet, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, you have to eat it in haste because it is the Lord's Passover, the celebratory meal that we're going to eat and, and is going to mark our departing from Egypt has to be eaten in haste. Leave in the middle of the night. Israel leaves, cross the Red Sea. Moses parts it, they cross over, they wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Joshua eventually ushers them into the promised land. That's kind of the story of Israel 
from Abraham kind of through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua. Well, let's think about that. Let's kind of compare and contrast that story with the story of Jesus. I have a little chart here. This took me a long time. The, the content was, didn't take nearly as long as like the, how to make, I, didn't, I had to Google how to make a chart. But, figured it out. So, uh, Israel, according to God, is his firstborn son. We see that in Exodus. You can kind of see everything over here is in Exodus, everything over here is in Matthew. Israel is God's firstborn son. Jesus is God's beloved son. Pharaoh hates Israel and he sees them as a threat. Herod hates Jesus because he sees him as a threat. Pharaoh kills all the male children in Israel. Herod kills all the male children in Bethlehem. Israel flees from Egypt in haste in the middle of the night. Jesus flees to Egypt in haste in the middle of the night. Israel passes through the Red Sea. Jesus is baptized in the Jordan River. Israel wanders in the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus is tempted by Satan in the wilderness. And ultimately, Joshua leads the people of Israel into the promised land. And Jesus, whose name literally is uh, Yeshua, which, is, which is kind of comes from the name Joshua, leads the people of God into the promised land of eternal life in God's kingdom. So Matthew is intentionally picking up this, uh, this, this comparison here. He's intentionally saying, look, look at Israel. Jesus is like Israel. Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that God called Israel to do. Jesus is doing it. Every, all of Israel's experiences, Jesus has a parallel experience. God called Israel, back to the Abrahamic covenant, God called Israel, I will be your God, you will be my people, I will bless you, and then you will mediate the blessings that I give to you out to the world. That's what Jesus does. Jesus obeys God in a way that Israel failed to, Jesus receives the blessing of God and then Jesus extends the blessing of God out to the world in a way that Israel never did. The entire Old Covenant is this series of God almost restating the same promises and the same mission to people over and over. He tells Adam, and then he tells Noah, and then he tells Abraham, and then he tells Moses, and then he tells David, right? Over and over, I will be your God, you will be my people, I will bless you, and then you will broadcast those blessings out to the world, failure after failure after failure, and Jesus stands as the the unique single person who actually accomplishes that mission that God has called him to. Everything that God intended for Israel and that they failed to do, Jesus fulfills perfectly. And now, in the the new exodus, Jesus delivers his people from slavery to sin, right? Right? First Exodus, God delivers his people from slavery in Egypt. The new Exodus, Jesus delivers his people from slavery to sin. Jesus is the new Israel who accomplishes for his people a new Exodus so that in him they can experience a new covenant. And we'll dive into the new covenant more in just a moment as we finish working through these verses in in Matthew. So back to Matthew 2.16. Then Herod... When he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from 
the wise men. The Magi felt uneasy about him. The angel warned Mary and Joseph about him. And now Herod is embodying everything, all of their their concerns and all of their their fears. In all likelihood, there's dozens of children, dozens of male children, two years old or younger in Bethlehem. Bethlehem is a small village, but we're looking at at least dozens of kids. And when you expand it out to the surrounding region... We're probably talking about well more than that. And Herod sends armed guards to slaughter a bunch of newborn babies and one-year-olds and two-year-olds. This is, you know, one of the most disturbing, one of the sickest, one of the uh, most vile things that you could imagine, certainly that you see in, in the Scriptures. And, G- and Herod does it without... Without hesitation, without even missing a beat, orders the murder of dozens of young boys, and then just then just goes and you know eats lunch, goes and takes a nap. Doesn't appear to be the least bit affected. For him, it's normal. For him, it's commonplace. It's easy for us to read something like this. And think, man, Herod is a, a bad guy. Herod is a sociopath. Herod is like Hitler. I'm glad I'm not like Herod. I would never do anything like that. I may have my issues. There's plenty of things that I struggle with. Nobody's perfect, but I am nothing like Herod. There is nothing, uh, there's nothing similar between me and him. And in a sense, I think that's... I think there's some truth there, right? I doubt that any of us here, of all the besetting sins that we struggle with, I doubt that any of it is murder or genocide and killing small children. But it's worth taking a minute to just consider and even reverse engineer Herod's actions and the motivations that lie beneath them and maybe think how he got here, right? Did Herod just wake up one morning and think, I am, I am so ruthless and I enjoy killing people so much, uh, particularly those that I am actually legally responsible for as their, as their political ruler. I'm so bad that I would happily wipe out an entire generation of them. Or was it a longer, slower, more subtle process that was born out of small compromises along the way that were, that were themselves born out of uh, a heart that had misplaced, you know, desires and, and affections. Herod wanted to kill Jesus because he hated Jesus. Herod hated Jesus because the Magi came and asked Herod about him, and they referred to Jesus as the, the king of the Jews. Herod was the king of the the Jews. Herod hated Jesus and wanted to kill him because Jesus, in Herod's mind, Jesus represented a threat to him and his kingship and his rule and his reign. Herod was the king. He had grown up, right? He had grown up from a powerful family. He was appointed king by the Roman Senate. His family had ties to Julius Caesar. They were wealthy and powerful. Right? Being king afforded Herod all of the things that he wanted. He could do whatever he wanted. Right? He could have whatever he wanted. No one could ever question him. No one could stand in his way. And Herod loved that 
power. He loved money and glory. He loved the adoration and the uh, adulation of the, the masses. He loved for people to marvel at him and celebrate him. Herod loved those things. He cherished those things, and he did not want to give those things up. You might say that Herod worshipped those things. He worshipped the, the thought of being king. He worshipped power, money, security, comfort. He worshipped adoration, right? He worshipped him, himself. He worshipped the, the idea of being king and remaining king. And this, uh, this kind of misplaced, misdirected affection in his heart is what drove him to such despicable things that presumably he would have thought he would never have, have done. Jesus represented the, the possibility that one day Herod was not going to be king anymore. One day he was going to be removed from office. right? And the thought of not being king, the thought of being removed from office was so unsettling, it was so repulsive to Herod in his soul that it was worse than slaughtering young children. Herod killed children and he tried to kill Jesus because he was clutching so tightly to the idea of being king that he was willing to do anything, no matter how despicable, in order to hold on to it. Herod committed murder because of a worship disorder. Right? He loved something too much and then let this outsized, misdirected love for his own kingship drive him to sins that he never thought that he would, that he would do. At the root of every sin is a, is a matter of the heart. At the, at the root of every, every evil thing that you do is a desire or a love or a longing or an affection that has gotten out over its skis and, and has, has you know, become uh, you know, outgrown, outkicked its coverage, right? You can like your job. You can love your job. You can want to do good at your job. God has called you to do that. You want to be excellent and get promoted, start a business, provide for your family, make the world a better place. It's, it's good to like your job. It's good to love your job. It's bad to worship your job. So when you start to worship your job and crave success, then you'll do anything to get it. You'll be dishonest. You'll lie, cheat, steal. You'll do anything that you have to do. Or maybe like Herod, you'll find yourself stooping to new levels that you thought that you would never stoop to in order to get the thing that you uh, love more than you should. You can like other people. You can, you can desire for other people to like you. There's nothing wrong with that. But if being liked and approved of and being thought highly of is the most important thing in the world, then you'll, you'll do anything to get it. You'll do anything to keep it. You'll hurt people. You'll use people. You'll misrepresent yourself. You'll do anything that you have to do to be liked and to get people's respect and affirmation. You'll stoop to any sin that seems to be beneath you and something that you would never stoop to in order to get people to like you. And you can feel it right. Job, respect, spouse, kids, possessions, money, politics, right? Fill in the blank with whatever it is that you, that you want. It's fine to love it. It's fine to pursue it. It's fine to enjoy it. It's bad to worship it. Because when we start to 
love things more than we should, when we start to take good things and make them into ultimate things, then essentially what we're saying is heaven is not being with God for all of eternity. Heaven is having this thing that I love. Right? Hell is not being separated from God and being under his wrath for all of eternity. Hell is not having this thing that I love and that I want. Right? My Savior is not Jesus who died on the cross to satisfy the wrath of God. My Savior is whatever it is that keeps me from you know, experiencing whatever I think hell is or, or helps me to enjoy whatever I think. Right? If, if heaven is having a paid-off house. It's, perf- it's, a, it's a good aspiration, a good ambition to have a paid-off house. But if, that, if that's something that you love more than you should, man, I can't, you know, if that's, if that's heaven is having a paid-off house and, and hell is having to refinance or, or rent, and my Savior is my income or my saving habits or my spending habits, right? Instead of heaven being God for eternity, hell being separated from God for eternity, and my Savior is Jesus who gets me from point A to point B, heaven is whatever I'm thinking about all the time, longing for, desiring, grasping to, and hell is whatever I'm most afraid of and whatever I, want, uh, whatever I don't want to see actualized in my life. We end up worshiping other things other than God, And then that misdirected worship will drive us to do anything and everything, including, in the case of Herod, mass murder. If we look at Herod and we think, wow, that's a a bad guy, I would never do anything like that, then we've missed the point, right? We should look at Herod and think, what is it in my life that I am at risk of loving too much? What is it in my life that I am hoping for, grasping to, what is it in my life that if I'm being honest with myself, I think about it and I long for it and I worry about losing it more than I think about and long for knowing God? Whatever the answer is to that question is kind of the pressure point where if you're not careful, that thing might drive you to places you never thought you'd go, or drive you to behaviors and sins that you thought you would never do. Because at the root of all sin is idolatry. At the root of all sin is, is a worship disorder. Verse 17, Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. Matthew already referenced Hosea earlier in this passage, one of the minor prophets, pointing out how Jesus is the new Israel, right? The Son of God who fulfilled the law of God to mediate the blessings of God to the world. And now he's quoting Jeremiah chapter 31, which is a very important, pivotal passage in your Bible, and it's, and it's one of the more beautiful and encouraging chapters in the Bible. I'd commend it to you. I would, I would, if I were you, I would take five minutes this afternoon and read Jeremiah 31 and let it wash over you and let it bless your soul. Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet, right? Jeremiah saw the exile of the people of God uh, at the hand of the ruthless uh, Babylon, 
right? They kind of came in, besieged Jerusalem, and deported all of the people out of it. The kingdom was divided. People are sent into captivity, and Jeremiah sees all of that. And the book of Jeremiah, along with the book of Lamentations, is him processing and, and weeping, right? It's very sad. It's very doom and gloom. He talks a lot about Israel's sin, and he talks a lot about God's judgment. And Jeremiah 31 is Jeremiah talking about the people who have survived and who are kind of in, uh, you know, they've been scattered into the wilderness. And here's this remnant. They've been scattered and they're weeping and they're in distress. And it says, yeah, and uh, Rachel, you know, Rachel is weeping for them. Rachel, the mention of Rachel in Jeremiah 31 is a reference to the character Rachel from the book of Genesis. Rachel was one of two sisters. Rachel, here, here's Rachel's story is like, is, the, a, a tr- is a tragedy, right? Rachel's one of two sisters, Rachel and Leah. Rachel is the younger sister. She's more beautiful. Jacob sees her and loves her, which, okay, wow, that's great. This is like a great love story. This is awesome. Except it's not because Jacob gets tricked into marrying Leah instead of Rachel And then Jacob marries Rachel along with Leah. So now Rachel has this guy that she loved, and Jacob loves her. But now there's another spouse, another wife in the mix that was kind of thrown in against their will. And there's tension, and there's hostility, and there's jockeying for position. And Jacob loves Rachel more than he loves Leah. But Rachel uh, is experiencing infertility. And so Jacob loves Leah and the children that she provides him more than Rachel. So there's this like, there's this fighting in Jacob's heart. Who do I love more? The woman who's prettier and that I like more or the woman who's giving me children that I need. And there's the whole reason I got married. Rachel's competing with another woman for the affection of her husband. And then ultimately God in, in a miracle opens her womb and she begins to have children. And it's incredible, except that she dies during childbirth of her son Benjamin. So she spends her life wanting to get married, and when she finally does, uh, she has another spouse that she's competing with, and then her husband loves her more, more than she does her, and she's struggling with infertility, and it's very difficult, and then she finally does have kids, and she doesn't even get to enjoy them because she dies in, in childbirth. It's a sad story. She's a tragic character. And Jeremiah is saying that the sadness and tragedy that marked Rachel's life in Genesis, is similar to the sadness and tragedy that Israel felt in the exile when God brought Babylon in and deported them all out of their their land. The tears that Rachel cried when she could not have children are the tears that Israel cried when they were deported out of their homeland. The tears that Rachel cried when her husband loved someone else more than her, the tears that Rachel cried when she died in childbirth, are the same tears that the nation of Israel cried when they were invaded and defeated and exiled from their home. Rachel experienced suffering and was deeply sad, and in the exile, Israel experienced suffering and was deeply sad. And here in Matthew 2, Jesus, or Matthew is connecting Jesus to both of those things. Matthew is saying the sadness that Rachel experienced... And the sadness that Israel experienced in the exile is the sadness that the people of God will experience surrounding Jesus' birth. When he was born, there was intense suffering and deep sadness, just like Rachel and just like the exile. And so Matthew is telling us 
that Jesus meets the exiles, Jesus meets the sufferers in the midst of their suffering, in the midst of their sadness, in the midst of their having been scattered, in in the midst of this pain and difficulty, Jesus enters into it with them and he brings them home. Because Jeremiah 31.15 is talking about how Rachel is crying for the people who are no more. And then the very next verse, it says, Thus says the Lord, Keep your voice from weeping, Rachel. Keep your eyes from tears. Because there is reward for your work, declares the Lord. They shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord. And the children shall come back into their own country. Jeremiah 31.15 says, We're sad. We're in despair. We are suffering. We are crying. The 16 and 17 say, God is going to bring us back. God is going to save us. God is going to alleviate our pain and our fears and our anxieties and our, our suffering. As sad as Rachel was and as sad as the exiles were, God is not going to leave them there. God is going to rescue them. And and Matthew connects all of those dots to Jesus. Jesus enters into the sadness of his people. Jesus enters into the tears of his people, no matter how bad it is. And Jesus is going to rescue them from their sin, their suffering, their persecution, their, their genocide, as it were. And then as Jeremiah continues in, ver- in chapter 31, we come down to verse 31 and following. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with the fathers on the day when I took them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke even though I was their husband. Not like that one. No, this is a new covenant. And this covenant I will make with the house of Israel, uh, I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. And no longer shall anyone teach his neighbor or his brother saying, you know the Lord, right? Know the Lord as a command, right? No one is going to give that command to anyone else because they will already all know me from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So this is, how, this is the, the glue that holds everything together, right? This is how we get from Jeremiah 31.15, Rachel weeping and crying, to Jeremiah 31.16 and 17 being brought back, where this is all going to happen through the new covenant. Jesus has told, or Matthew has told us thus far, Jesus is the new Israel. Jesus is the fulfillment of what God wants from his people. Jesus uh, mediates the blessing of God out to the world. Jesus went, like, Jesus went to Egypt just like Israel did. Jesus escaped persecution and genocide just like Israel did. Because of all of those things that Israel experienced, right? Moses, Pharaoh, Exodus, Red Sea, Sinai, wilderness, right? All of that happened in the Old Covenant, the series of covenants with Adam and Noah and Moses and David, right? Kind of, these are all just iterations of the Old Covenant. And, and Jeremiah is saying that there's something new is coming, something different is coming, something better is coming. It will not be 
like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day that I took them from the hand out of the land of Egypt. So something that's coming is going to be different than the old covenant. There's going to be something new. There's going to be something better about it. And here's, the, here's what's new about the new covenant. Here's what's different about the new covenant than the old covenant. This covenant, verse 33, this covenant I will make, I will put my law within them and write it on their hearts. So the old covenant, God says to his people, you need to obey God, right? Like you need to obey me in order to experience my blessing. You need to obey me so that I can bless you. And then you can kind of extend that blessing out to the world. And then when the people of God rebelled, they broke the covenant and they forfeited the, the privileges that, were, that would, would come to them as they kept the covenant. God says, the old covenant, you rebelled, you forfeited the blessings of the covenant. The new covenant is different. I'm going to write my law on your hearts. I will give you a new heart. The heart of stone that wants to rebel against me and invite curses and judgment, I'll I'll remove it. I'll give you a brand new heart uh, born out of my spirit that wants to love me and obey me and enjoy my blessings. The new covenant is new because it's not uh, because we get a new heart, we get a regenerated heart. How else is the new covenant new? Verse 33, it says, And I will be their God, they shall be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least to the greatest. So the old covenant, in the old covenant, people within the covenant community of the nation of Israel had to go to one another and say, Know the Lord. Right? Because, because the nation of Israel was made up of both believers and unbelievers. Paul says in Romans 9 that there are people who are a part of physical Israel who are not a part of spiritual Israel. Paul says in Romans 2 that there are people who are Jewish outwardly but not Jewish inwardly. So, so the, the, the old covenant community, not everyone that's in it actually knows God. The new covenant community is different. Everyone that's in it knows God from the least to the greatest because you enter into the old covenant community by being born physically into the nation of Israel. You enter into the new covenant community by repenting of your sin and trusting in in Jesus. So the old covenant community, you had a segment of non-believers and you had a remnant of believers. The new covenant community is all believers from the least to the greatest. Everyone knows God. So the new covenant is newer and better than the old covenant because we have new hearts, regenerated hearts, because we all know the Lord. And finally, and most importantly, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. So the new covenant is new and better than the old covenant because it's based on the forgiveness of sin. Instead of the old covenant, law, obedience, do this and you will live, obey me and I will bless you, the new covenant says... I have forgiven your sins. You've rebelled against me, but I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm not going to leave you to suffer and pay the penalty for your sin. I am going to come to you. I'm going to enter into your suffering as a baby, as a child. I'm going to be born of a woman. I'm going to be chased out of Bethlehem by Herod. I'm going to grow up in Nazareth. I'm going to live the perfect life that you were called to live but never could. I'm going to die the death that you deserve in your place. And once I do, there will be no more wrath, no more judgment left for you. There will only be mercy. That's the promises of God 
in the new covenant found in Jeremiah 31. And here in Matthew 2, Matthew is saying that's all about Jesus. God makes a promise, a new covenant, a better covenant, new heart, forgiveness of sin. Jesus is the one who brings about the new covenant. And if there's any doubt about whether Jesus is the one who brings about the new covenant, he makes it very explicit at the end of his life. Matthew makes it explicit at the Matthew makes it implicit at the beginning of his life. Jesus makes it explicit at the end of his life. At the Last Supper. The night when he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he said, This is my body, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup and he said, This cup is the new covenant, a la Jeremiah thirty one, in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So Jesus is saying, the new covenant that Jeremiah was talking about, that Matthew was referring to, was kind of implicitly referencing my death on the cross, my body broken like bread, my blood poured out like wine, is what inaugurates the new covenant. My death, the shedding of my blood, is how you can be forgiven, how you can be welcomed into the people of God. It institutes a new covenant, a better covenant, so if you turn from your sin and trust in me as your Savior, you can be a part of this new covenant community. Jesus is the new Israel who fled to Egypt and then came out of Egypt. Jesus is the new Israel who meets people in the midst of their mournful exile and gives them joy and life with him. Jesus is the new Israel, who inaugurates the new covenant so that we can experience his presence. And our calling, in light of all that, is is simple. It's to see Jesus rightly and then to respond to Jesus appropriately. To see Jesus as the glorious God, King, Savior, Messiah, who fulfills the law of God, and, and mediates the blessing of God to his people. It's to see Jesus rightly and then to respond to him appropriately by turning from our sin, turning away from those things that our heart is inclined toward, and turning toward Christ in faith, trusting in him, holding fast to him, putting the weight of our salvation on his shoulders instead of on our own shoulders. And the Advent season is a chance for us to remember that. It's a chance for us to reflect on that. It's a chance for us to reaffirm it in our hearts and to respond to it in our lives, that Jesus is the new Israel who ushers in the new covenant where his people can trust in him and experience his presence forever. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, We thank you that you came into our broken world and you embraced all of the suffering and hardship that came with it. We thank you that you offer hope to mournful exiles. We thank you that you are the new Israel who accomplishes the new exodus and liberates us from slavery and sin. We thank you for the new covenant and for the privilege that it is to know you in it. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.